Which is the number one chocolate drink? Two pizzas for the price of one. I taste so wonderful. That's a spicy meat. There are clear divisions in this country, very deep and horrible divisions, really around race, in my opinion, and lots of other issues. But there are some issues that that could unite us. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. And I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. And I'm Tom Philpot, food and agriculture writer for Mother Jones Magazine. Today's secret ingredient is tips. Tips. Just leave me a tip. The tips that one gets uh, from working in low-wage work and service work, but also the spear tip of the revolution. Uh, and to talk to us about that, we have Saru Jayaraman joining us. She's the co-founder and co-director of Rock United, the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United. Uh, and she's also director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. Um, her latest book is Forked, A New Standard for American Dining, and that's out with Oxford University Press. And Saru, thanks for joining us today. So, Saru, um, let, let's jump right in uh, with um, the reason we're very excited to talk to you right now uh, in this post-election moment is that it's not all bad. Uh, and I, I wonder if you could try and persuade us that it's not all bad. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I have to persuade myself sometimes, but it is true. It is not all bad. Um we had some historic victories on Tuesday, truly historic in the restaurant industry and for labor in general. Um, so if you don't mind, I want to share a little bit of context first, a little bit of history as to why it's so historic what we won on Tuesday. We won uh, the elimination of the lower wage for tipped workers, which has been $2.13 an hour at the federal level for now over 25 years, it's been between zero and two dollars for over a century. Um, and uh, in Maine, which had a tip minimum wage of three dollars an hour, we just uh, won a ballot measure on Tuesday of last week together with our allies in Maine to fully eliminate the lower wage for tipped workers and move all workers to twelve dollars an hour. In Flagstaff, Arizona, we also won in a very red state. We won fifteen dollars an hour and full elimination of the lower wage for tipped workers. Um, every single ballot measure to raise the minimum wage uh, that was on the ballot on Tuesday passed. And to me, it's a real indication of uh, just the fact that there are some issues like this that unite people in America. We know across party lines, across race lines, across gender, uh, across urban and rural divides. Generally, people agree that all people in America should be actually earning a livable wage from their employer, not from customers. And just to share a little bit of history as to why this is such a historic shift that happened on Tuesday, um, the background of this issue is that actually tipping didn't originate in the United States. It originated in feudal Europe. When it came to the States, it was rich Americans traveling to Europe and trying to show off that they knew the rules of Europe. And it was widely rejected in the late 1800s, early 1900s, actually by a very similar populist movement that some people are claiming we're experiencing right now that rejected this vestige of a feudal system and said, 
Uh, this is un-American. It's undemocratic. You should get good service regardless of how much you can afford to tip. And by the way, employers should pay their workers, not customers. And so that movement, which did really well, spread to Europe, succeeded in Europe, which is why there's very little tipping in Europe. But in the States, because of our ugly slave history, because it came to the States right around the time of emancipation, 1860s, the restaurant industry demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves and not pay them anything at all and let them live on customer tips. And that idea that restaurant workers could be paid zero dollars and earn the minimum wage through tips was codified into the very first minimum wage law that passed in 1938. And we went from zero dollars in 1938 to $2.13 an hour at the federal level. And we've been moving a campaign for the last many years to get rid of this legacy of slavery because it's also a majority female workforce enduring the worst sexual harassment of any industry in the United States because they're tolerating all kinds of inappropriate customer behavior to earn their money and tips. So Maine became the first East Coast state in the history of the United States and the eighth state in the United States entirely on Tuesday to fully eliminate this legacy of slavery and this source of terrible sexual harassment. It's truly historic. Maybe we can talk about what are the next states that are considering and the next localities that are considering such measures. And and also comment on how those measures got on the ballot in the first place. What sort of organizing is necessary to make it happen? Yeah. So, um, you know, we launched this campaign for One Fair Wage in 2013. I will say that we at Rock, even though we're a restaurant workers organization and much of the labor movement, we all... We all kind of had been brainwashed by the restaurant industry, by the restaurant lobby to believe that every time we raise the minimum wage, it's okay to leave tipped workers behind at some percentage of the overall minimum wage or just leave them out altogether because they earn money in tips. And over the last couple of years, we've put out a ton of research showing not only is this a legacy of slavery, but as I said, this is really an issue of gender justice. You've got 70% of all tipped workers in America are women. It's 6 million women in America. They're the poorest women in America. Their median wage, including tips, is $8.50 an hour. They're largely women working at IHOP and Applebee's and Olive Garden. Um, These are women who are 40% single moms and use food stamps at double the rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce. It's the largest employer of women in America. Um, and yet, despite all of that, you've seen no change in these in these workers' wages, no change at all. And what's so interesting is that we kind of really shifted this whole issue with our allies, with legislators, by framing it as an issue of sexual harassment because so many of these women, as I said, are tolerating just five times the rate, actually, statistically, five times the rate of sexual harassment of every other industry in the United States. And it's because when you're a woman who relies on 2 or $3 an hour as a wage, your wage is coming entirely from taxes because that wage is not really a wage. It's so low it goes entirely to taxes. You're living off your tips. And so you have to tolerate whatever a customer might do to you, however they may touch you or treat you or talk to you, because the customer's always right, because the customer pays your bills and pays your rent and feeds your family, not your employer. And we actually had, when the whole thing came out with Donald Trump's, you know, the audio saying that he had grabbed women, we had so many members say, oh, that happens to me every single day. A man grabs me every day in the vagina and... I can do nothing about it, nothing. These are regular, what they call regulars, quote-unquote regulars, regular customers. 
They're they're allowed to do whatever they want. We we're not allowed to complain because they're feeding our families, and the employer is actually encouraging it, saying to us, you know, the way to make more money, the way the way to more, earn more tips is to dress more sexy, show more cleavage, wear tighter clothing, and essentially let these people do whatever they want to you. That's how you, that's your worth and your value as a server is basically. Uh, subjecting yourself to objectification. Um, and so we we ran this campaign first convincing our own allies in the in the movement and legislators that we needed to shift the way we had thought about this issue. We could no longer keep striking this compromise where every time the minimum wage went up, leave out the tipped workers because every time we were doing that, we were essentially leaving out half the women in the minimum wage workforce. We were giving the restaurant industry, the largest employer of minimum wage workers, a total pass on having to raise the minimum wage. And we were throwing women under the bus every single time. And so the first step in winning what we just won was convincing allies in Maine uh, and in Arizona this was the way to go. They needed to actually do it differently and fully eliminate the lower wage for tipped workers. And then, of course, our allies in Maine, we had to support them in pushing back on competitive ballot measures from the Restaurant Association. So the Restaurant Association has a new tactic. They're generally saying, oh, sure, we can generally raise the minimum wage as long as we leave the tipped workers out. So they had introduced a competitive ballot measure in Maine, actually, or tried to, that raised the minimum wage, overall minimum wage, very slightly and left tipped workers out. And so there was a real battle first that had to be fought to get our ballot measure to be the ballot measure that ended up on the ballot. Hmm. And then there was a battle to fight the air war to ultimately get people out to vote and to win. But what is so interesting to me is that much of the campaign, as I mentioned, we ran as an issue of gender equity, as an issue of women and sexual harassment and women being treated with dignity and respect. And so you have people in Maine and Arizona voting for gender equity and an end to sexual harassment and a livable wage and economic security for women on the same ballot that they're voting for Trump, which says so much about, okay, you know, there are clear divisions in this country, very deep and horrible divisions around race, uh, really around race, in my opinion, and lots of other issues, but there are some issues that that could unite us, and so that is that is the hope that we're bringing into the next season. Since Tuesday, um, we've heard we've we've heard from so many powerful allies that they are willing to work with us on similar ballot measures in new states. So we are now moving legislation and ballot measures in Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, D.C., Michigan, and Illinois. Um, just as a start, there are many more states, at least a dozen other states that we're in discussion with, but those six states are are for sure going to have bills and ballot measures next year and in 2018. And in all of those states, we've seen a real sea change in powerful allies coming to us and saying, wow, it seems like this could be an issue that helps us reach across this gaping divide, talk to people that we lost um, and and have something that really unites us, excite us, all of us, to go to the polls and vote for, you know, not this kind of change, a change that takes us 100 years backwards, but a change that really is about, truly is about the 1%. I'm sorry, the 99%. <laughs> <laughs> this change we just it's, had was about the 1%. It's about them too, but in the opposite. It's well. taking money out of their pockets. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> You know, I'm, right. I'm wondering, sorry, how, how are workers responding? How are servers and bartenders and people in the industry responding to this? 
Well, it's really interesting because for the most part, if workers, you know, be, you know, hear from us and understand what it is we're trying to push, we're trying to eliminate the lower wage for tipped workers, not necessarily tips altogether. Uh, they're incredibly supportive. I mean, who wouldn't be uh, to see a, a real raise in their wage and also some stability before tips? Um, you know, and, and I do want to kind of clarify this because sometimes people get confused. Are we fighting for the elimination of tipping? Are we fighting for the elimination of tips? You know, there are some amazing employers we've been working with over the last many years. We've formed a high road employer association of 200 restaurant companies, some really high profile restaurant companies like Danny Myers Union Square Hospitality Group and Tom Colicchio and Alice Waters, um, Blue Bottle Coffee, all the way down to small mom and pop restaurants. And as we've worked with these companies on this issue, many have been very willing to come out publicly and say, yes, we need to get rid of the lower wage for tipped workers. Some have gone a step further and say, well, we want to get rid of tipping altogether in our restaurants. And we're only supportive of those measures in the cases where employers are able to guarantee that workers are going to get everything now from wages that they used to get in tips. Because workers' real fear is you know, $15 is actually not a livable wage at all in most places in the United States. If you're going to take my tip income away from me, uh, I'm actually going to lose money. And so that's not what we're fighting for unless employers can guarantee that workers will actually get the full livable wage far above $15 that they would get. You know, some workers, not all workers, get in tips. Uh, But Beyond that, really the policy we're going for is the elimination of the lower wage for tipped workers and let tips be what they always were meant to be, which is on top of that as an extra, as a gratuity, not in place of the wage. Um, and so when workers understand that, they are fully in, you know, on, on board. The Restaurant Association has done a pretty good job of misinforming tons of workers on the East Coast that Um, you know, if we raise their wages, their tips will go away. And in fact, they started a website called Don't Take Away My Tips. And they've just convinced some workers that we are trying to, you know, educate and inform that if, you know, the tip minimum wage goes away, if the lower wage for tips goes away, uh, tip for tipped workers goes away, that they will lose their tips. Now, we've done a lot of research on the seven states that have already eliminated the lower wage for tipped workers. That's California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska. These seven states, and now Maine will be the eighth state, um, these seven states already for the last 40 years have shown they have higher restaurant sales per capita, higher job growth in the industry, higher job growth among servers and tipped workers, even higher rates of tipping. Actually, San Francisco has the highest tipping average of any city in the United States, far higher than New York City's. And Alaska has the highest tipping average of any state in the United States, a far higher than any East Coast state. And so it's just not true that you pay a full wage and tips go away, but that's the kind of brainwashing that we've been up against, the kind of miseducation, misinformation that we've been up against. But we also are up against now another real problem, which is, of course, we saw a lot of uh, of restaurant workers, servers, you know, vote for Trump. And I think we need, we have a lot of work to do. This is the largest private sector employer. It's 12 million. We just hit 12 million workers last month. We just hit a high mark in this industry. It just continues to explode. It's the fastest growing employer. It is the employer that's replacing manufacturing in a lot of these rust belt states where people are struggling. Uh, And so you'll see a lot of people in our industry voting for Trump, despite the fact that everything he's saying is so contrary to 
um, restaurant workers' interests. So we have a lot of work to do, but also we see this issue as one, as I said, that despite how people voted in terms of their presidential candidate, um, is one that really a lot of people can agree on. Can you talk a little bit about the the misinformation um, and, in particular, the, the National Restaurant Association? They've uh, they've cropped up in our conversations here at the Secret Ingredient uh, already uh, in in the past couple of weeks. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering if you you might be able to introduce the the as as you put it so so wonderfully the other NRA uh, to our listeners and and perhaps give us a sense of what it is that you're you know you're see, what you're seeing in terms of their tactics and in terms of their access to the uh, the Trump administration. Yeah. Um, So it's true that we call them the other NRA because they have been named the 10th most powerful lobbying group in Congress. And yet most people in America have never heard of them. You know, they really do represent the Fortune 500 chains in America. The four leading companies within the other NRA are McDonald's, Yum Brands, which is Taco Bell, KFC, Pizza Hut, um, Darden, which is the parent company for Olive Garden, Capital Grill Steakhouse, Longhorn Steakhouse, and about eight other brands. Darden is the world's largest full-service restaurant company and the world's largest employer of tipped workers. And the fourth company in the other NRA, leading the other NRA, which should be of no surprise but may be surprising, is Disney. Actually, these four companies lead the other NRA, um, have fought vitriolically through the other NRA to keep wages as low as $2.13 an hour for tipped workers, have fought vitriolically against paid sick days for these workers so that they cannot take a day off when they are sick, meaning they serve our food with everything from typhoid fever to H1N1. I'm not exaggerating. These are real stories um, from our members. Um, and they it is the earlier kind of uh, version of the other NRA, their, their, their predecessor, that was the group that the industry lobby that actually demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves after emancipation and not pay them anything at all, essentially continuing the legacy of slavery and our ugly racialized caste system in this country. And so this powerful trade lobby started their history by essentially getting free labor with a $0 minimum wage in 1938. And over the last almost century, they've succeeded in winning exemptions for themselves on everything from minimum wage to health care to paid sick days. I mean, they just uh, like to cry that they're the industry with the lowest profit margins, but operate on a business model that basically um, allows them to get away with, with free labor. And and I always say, you know, 150 years ago as a nation, there were two other industries that said, you know, we'll never survive if we have to pay people. You know, our business model depends on free labor. And 150 years ago, we're faced with the same argument. You know, we as an industry won't survive if we have to pay our own workers. Now, we know that to not be true because there are seven states that prove that the industry does better when you actually pay your workers a, a decent wage. But um, but this industry is essentially making the same argument that cotton and tobacco made 150 years ago. And our nation 150 years ago said, absolutely not. That's not just inhumane and we won't accept it. We won't tolerate it as human beings. But also, it's an unsustainable business model. And it is very scary that with this unsustainable business model and this constant demand for exemptions, the NRA has tremendous access now to all three branches of government, not just one. Um, And the fact that they've attacked us over and over and over again, and there's always been a check and balance that's prevented them from shutting people like us down. 
Um, the fact that they're now going to have tremendous more power, of course, is scary, but it's not going to stop us. It only makes us all the more um, committed to fighting this fight. Another aspect of the Trump administration has obviously been its, you know, kind of hardline right wing stance on immigration. And the industry obviously relies heavily on migrant workers, um, immigrant workers in the front of the house and the back of the, you know, especially in the back of the house. And I'm wondering how, how you're seeing that issue going forward, because, you know, it's one of those things where this might be a break in the Trump coalition because part of the industrial interests that are licking their chops over a Trump administration rely on migrants that is being, and that is being attacked by other parts of his sort of coalition. So I wonder how restaurants fit into that. I'm so glad you asked that. I've been dealing with nothing but this for the last day or so. Because actually our industry is the largest by far employer of undocumented immigrants in the United States. 1.3 of the supposed 11 million uh, undocumented immigrants are in our industry alone. We are the largest employer of immigrants in general and the largest employer of undocumented immigrants. Um, Everybody knows, and the NRA, this is the one thing we and the other NRA agree on, is that everybody knows our industry would crumble without these workers. Uh, These these workers are the backbone of our industry. In many places like New York and L.A. and Chicago, we estimate uh, undocumented workers represent up to 50% of all workers in our industry, 50%. And so you would see an immediate shutdown of thousands of restaurants if— uh, the numbers that Trump is talking about were actually taken from from the United States, deported. So I'm hearing from an I mean, I'm having conversations not just with workers, but with tons and tons of restaurant owners who are actually telling us that they um, it's hurting their business. It's really hurting their business, not just in terms of the fact that they the industry right now is facing the worst labor shortage in the history of our industry. And I can't emphasize that enough. I mean, long before Trump was elected for the past year, employers have been saying how this is a crisis. They cannot find enough workers to employ. The industry's growing too fast. The wages have been too low. It's partly why so many employers have joined ranks with us over the last years, because everybody's recognizing a need to restructure the way this industry industry operates because they can't find enough workers. They can't even retain the workers that they have. So there's like, it's desperate times already. And then when you're talking about taking away, uh, like in some places, 50% of the workforce, you're talking about potentially shutting down the largest employer. So in the on the one hand, the new administration is talking about, we're going to you know, create all these new jobs. And on the other hand, they're talking about policies that are going to shut down the largest employer, the largest provider of jobs in the United States. And so um, it just it just doesn't make any sense. And putting aside an actual deportation, just the talk of deportation and the anti-immigrant climate right now is creating innumerable problems for the employers that we're talking to. Restaurant owners are reporting workers have very high levels of tension and there's fighting. Uh, people are very depressed and in despair. They are, you know, showing up to work drunk. Workers that would never in any other circumstance um, show up to work drunk. Very high levels of tension, very little productivity, and even 
some workers, some employers are pro, pro, uh, are reporting that this feels like 9/11. You know, customer base is down. You know, finance workers who used to eat out a lot are not. Tips are down. Um, it it kind of feels like a bit of an apocalypse in our industry. And so I think there's a sense of um, you know, as a business owner, President-elect Trump, please understand that as business owners, you are. You are hurting our business. I do want to say one thing, though, from a worker perspective, which is that until this moment, a lot of the debate, as you alluded to, actually didn't involve immigrants at all. It was a debate between the far right, anti-immigrant, kind of xenophobic conversation and the business leaders who said, no, we need these workers as long as they're guest workers and temporary workers. Uh, And so there was no room for, no, actually what we need is comprehensive immigration reform and a path to citizenship. And so I think sometimes in moments like these, when people go so far in one extreme, it it is a potential time for people to rise up and say, no, it's about neither of those things. It's about neither temporary work visas, nor is it about, you know, getting rid of lots of people. It's about actually allowing these people who've already been here for generations, paying taxes, opening businesses, uh, half of our workforce, allowing them to stay with dignity uh, and as and like everybody else. I mean, um, just to follow up, I'm guessing it's pretty convenient if you're a large employer to have a large part of your workforce not be documented because they sort of live in fear and pro- they're probably harder to organize and harder to organize yourself if you're worried about getting deported. And so the, the status quo has been, I'm guessing, kind of convenient where you've got access to the labor force for the most part but it's a largely disempowered labor force. So I guess I'm wondering how the NRA has intervened in the path to citizenship debate you were just talking about. Have they been in favor of immigration reform or have they sort of sat that one out? No, I mean, they have definitely been vocal in the past for guest worker bills. You're right. And uh, for temporary visas, anything that allows these workers to stay and be part of the labor force, but not does not allow them a path to citizenship. But, you know, what I, when I was talking about tipping earlier and the tip minimum wage, we have experienced the greatest rift long before this election over the last year. We have experienced the greatest rift, the greatest divide that we have ever seen in our industry with really high profile industry leaders stepping out and saying the old way, the old way of doing business, the way of the NRA, you know, the cheapest possible labor costs and and just getting the most out of every worker and kind of grinding workers to the bone is just not working for us as an industry. And very large and very high profile employers have come our way. We've counted, we had 200 restaurants in our association. We've counted 189 more companies move in our direction over the last nine months. Large companies, small companies, it's just been a huge rift. And I and I guess what I'm saying is, yes, of course, there are chains. There's the chains. There's the other NRA that sees these workers as disposable, and it's convenient that they're in fear. But there is a large and growing chorus of employers that actually says, you know what? That's not the right way to do business, nor is it the best way to do business. We actually see long-term better profits, better productivity, better profitability when we have workers who are here to stay, who are treated as the professionals that they are, uh, who actually are paid a livable wage and can succeed because they're thriving while we're thriving. You know, Saru, I'm wondering, l- listening to this, it's like, oh my God, this is the, this is the, um, 
bird, the canary in the coal mine. You know, the restaurant industry has shed light. If you just looked at the restaurant industry in the past year, you could see the pathology of the objectification of women and what that does to your own sense of identity. And perhaps it could explain why 43% of white women voted for Trump. But also, like, you see the segregation in the racism that's inherent in the food system. And also people going out to eat more in the restaurant industry growing so quickly, you can see people's health decline and the and people not not cooking at home, that would indicate, you know, so you kind of see these, these little signs that tell us that there is a huge uh, problem within the fabric of our society. And I'm wondering, and maybe that's not maybe that's not true. That's kind of just the just the what I get from what you're saying. But my question is actually, were you surprised by Trump's election? No, I was going to agree with you wholeheartedly. We often say this. This industry is really the epitome of our economy, our food system, you know, our our caste system in terms of race, um, what is happening in this nation around gender. Uh, and the answer is yes, I was surprised by Trump's election, but I maybe shouldn't have been given that we could see so much of this in our industry for so long. I think what surprised me was that We've seen these signs in our industry for a very long time, very severe racial divides, very severe misogyny that is normalized. I mean, I think I think the number actually is 53% of white women voted. For, that's what I saw. Yeah, that, yeah I, 53% I, I that. of white women voted for Trump. And I mean, to me, it it really makes sense because when I and I've, you know, I've given at least, you know, at this point, sadly, maybe 1500 <laughs> book talks, and I go around the country to very remote places of the country, and I speak on the restaurant industry. And I have people always women always coming up to me and saying, you know, I've been sexually harassed recently in my current job, I'm now a teacher or a lawyer or an organizer. I've been sexually harassed currently on my recent job, but I didn't do anything about it because it was never as bad as it was when I was a young woman working in restaurants. Mm. So one in two Americans works in this industry at some point in their lifetimes. It is the second largest employer in the United States. Um, And so for most young women, this is the first job in high school, college, or graduate school. This is how they are learning what is acceptable and tolerable in the workplace. This is how they are learning what their worth and their value is. It's based on selling their bodies in order to make more money in tips. And this is what they learn, whether they learn what is normal, what is normalized. It's normal for a regular to walk in and grab you in the vagina. And in fact, that's a sign of your worth because you must be attractive enough for that customer to want to grab you and then you're going to make more money in tips. And in fact, tipping in itself, tipping by alone, forget about the rest of the industry, which is such an interesting microcosm, tipping alone is such a reflection of our ills in America. You know, there have been so many countless studies that show that tipping has nothing to do with service. Tipping is entirely correlated with the server's race, with their gender, with their breast size, with their hair color, with their eye color. You make more money in tips as a woman if you touch the customer or they touch you. You make less money as a man if you touch the customer or they touch you. So these things are just the epitome of of what is happening more broadly, which is that our our nation is seriously 
suffering when you've got the largest and fastest growing sector of our economy proliferating the absolute lowest paying jobs in the country. It means that this industry is growing low wage America. It means that low wage America, we're not talking, we're talking about the highest levels of income inequality that we've seen since the Gilded Age. So extreme amounts of suffering, um, extreme amounts of misogyny, and as you mentioned, racial segregation. Everything that we're talking about, you see in this one industry, uh, and and on top of all of that, um, a lot of work to be done to help people see how their own interests are best served, not by um, leaders who represent the one percent, but by actual change that helps unite the ninety-nine percent. Uh, sorry, you talked about disposability and about dignity, um, and. I, I mean, I think that there, there is a story in in which people who vote for Trump, uh, who voted for Obama, are carrying on a narrative of that. I mean, they voted for Obama because they wanted change and very little of that has come uh, or not nearly enough. And so they voted for Trump because he offered radical change, uh, even if it's uh, not necessarily the kind of change that empowers workers. But I wonder whether this election has caused the labor movement uh, any, uh, I mean, a, a, a a moment of reflection um, in their relationship with the Democratic Party. Uh, I, I wonder if, if uh, you, you're able to, to share some of the soul-searching that's going on amid all the blame-storming around uh, Trump's victory within the labor movement. Well, I've heard a lot of reflection from labor, and I've heard a lot of reflection from Democratic leadership. Um, it, it feels it, like it's too early to see reflection in terms of the relationship one to the other because I think they're both in a state of shock <laughs> mm-hmm. and despair, as many of us are. Um, but I will say on the side of labor, you know, I've heard labor leaders say things like, you know, um, we need these issues that unite us and can help us get back to the tens of thousands of members that we lost in this election who um, voted against their self-interest. And then on the Democratic Party side, I think we are seeing a real recognition that the, the, you know, the corporate interests and the elite control of the party has not worked. It's not working. It is not resonating. More of the same doesn't work. Um, it really has to be about genuine change, not change during the election, but genuine change like raising the, wa- the wage to $15, um, things that actually working people can actually feel in their, in their pocketbooks, in their lives, um, in their sense of dignity and worth, as you're saying. And, and I'm hopeful, I'm very hopeful about Keith Ellison. Um, he mm. has been a real champion for working people. Uh, he has been one of the most progressive and conscious people on a wide variety of issues um, so I'm hopeful that this is a wake-up call both for Labor and for the Democratic Party. Um, but the thing that can't happen, cannot happen, is um, we all begin to think about, okay, let's be more progressive. Let's think more about economic inequality. Let's think about meeting people's uh, economic needs. And we're not pushing the country to deal with its real serious race and gender issues. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, we can't, we cannot um, simply say, we can't in despair, the Democratic Party or Labor say, okay, we didn't listen to white working class people. Let's listen to them. Let's cater to them. Yes. And, it, you know, reconciliation can't be a one-way streak. 
It has to be about also working with white working class people and others to bridge divides of race and gender um, because change is coming. Demographic change is coming and these divides are only going to get worse unless we actually deal with them in a very um, head-on way. While we're on this topic, and I think it's a it's a fine topic because you are kind of on the ground doing grassroots political work, including in electoral politics with ballot initiatives, ballot initiatives and stuff. Uh, w- one thing that I wonder about this conversation, I feel like there's this big debate happening, and we even talked about it here with a guest about a week ago, um, about how there needs to be more emphasis on the white working class. And that kind of talk really... Um, it doesn't sit right with me. And I guess what I think about is what I thought about early in the Bernie Sanders campaign when he first started to bubble up and Black Lives Matter was also in a state of fast growth because there had been some atrocities and police killings of unarmed black men. And I saw these two things happening sort of at the same time. And I had this this um, kind of optimism that maybe these two things could be blended and, you know, what is the potential for for sort of starting a broad-based working-class movement? Because, um, you know, most people of color in this country are working-class. So it's not like these, there's That's these right. two separate categories of working-class issues and people of color issues. But can there be a broad-based appeal um, that sort of unites these forces or am I being naive and there's too much racism out there for such a thing to work and, and you have to appeal directly to the white working class, which I just find to be, you know, so Nixonian or <laughs> I think about the Reagan Democrats and, and actually what Trump did. Trump appealed to the white working class. But, you know, we see what he's delivering now, which is a bunch of lobbyists. Um, and that's what Reagan did, too. So it wasn't a big uh, it wasn't a big mystery. But. What do you think about a broad-based working-class movement that takes into account race but also pushes these issues that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, that's why I come back to um, what we started the conversation with in terms of these ballot measures and the hope that there are issues that that can unite us. I mean, so, so there's two ways of approaching this issue, which is what you're saying. One is to find issues that appeal to the white working class like minimum wage. And you could run a minimum wage ballot measure in a state like Michigan or um, really anywhere, and it would appeal to lots of people and it would pass. And you could just do that and and it would drive out the vote and maybe you could get some more of the traditional Democrats into office through that turnout. Or you could use something like one fair wage and the elimination of the tip minimum wage to not only you know unite people, turn people out, have something that everybody agrees on, but also have very real conversations with people about this is a legacy of slavery uh, and there are real racial divisions in our nation. And you've been suffering, yes, but so have actually millions of people of color for generations in this country for a much longer period of time. Uh, and 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 also deal with misogyny and what it means to have a woman valued for how much she allows herself to be objectified in the workplace. Talk to women about, you know, this is not normal. It's not okay. What you're experiencing is actually illegal. It's called sexual harassment. Um, 
talk to people about their real experiences and encourage them to have a different kind of conversation. So some of it is how you run the campaign. You could run a ballot measure for minimum wage talking exclusively about minimum wage as an economic issue, or you could talk about minimum wage as a race and gender issue and say, this is something we agree on and there are real implications here that we all need to talk about. So I I think we have our work cut out for us and um, it, it will not work to keep doing things the way we've been doing things. It will not work to talk to people in isolation from one another, the white working class people outside of the urban areas and the people of color in the urban areas. It just isn't going to work anymore. We have to do something different. And that different thing is both addressing economic injustice and addressing race and gender uh, at the same time. So, Sara, the, the outlook isn't uh, entirely rosy, but what can listeners do? What can we do to um, move us towards this, you know, to, to you know, fighting for uh, affordable childcare and higher wages and uh, fighting against racism uh, in, in the United States and, and sexism too? Yeah. Well, I want to repeat that all of these issues are incredibly powerful potential uniters. Childcare is an issue every family deals with, whether you're a white working class family or uh, a family of color or an immigrant family. Every family in America deals with childcare. Wages is an issue that is of increasing importance, as you said, to almost half of America. You know, it is estimated that by 2020, 2021, one in two working Americans will live in poverty. We're at one in three right now. We're going up to one in two over the next couple of years. So wages is something that there is just universal agreement with. If you poll anywhere, Republicans and Democrats alike, white People of color all agree we need to raise the minimum wage, and we need one fair wage, the elimination of the tip minimum wage. So these are issues that have tremendous potential to unite, and uh, everybody who's listening eats out and has the power to join the movement to help us have conversations with workers on these issues and to help win these issues, um, to get them on ballots, to get them in front of legislators, to actually start demonstrating change in a way that will allow people to come together and vote for Uh, better elected officials as well. So uh, everybody who eats out can uh, be a part of this movement. We have a consumer association called Diners United. Uh, You can find it on our website, rockunited.org, R-O-C-United.org. As a member of Diners United, you can, uh, there's tools to allow you to speak to workers and encourage them to join the movement every time you eat out. There's tools to allow you to speak to employers Go to your favorite restaurant owner and tell them, look, I love the food and I love the service here. I would love to see you join the High Road Employer Association along with Danny Meyer and Tom Colicchio and all these fabulous restaurant owners who are in favor of livable wages um, and a professionalization and dignity and respect for workers. I want to see you join that association. Leave the NRA and join the High Road Association. Um, We as consumers have tremendous power, and we've seen a lot of high-road restaurants come our way because they've heard from consumers saying, we want you to make a move, to make a change. Um, Consumers also have the ability to speak up to legislators. You don't just have the ability to vote with your fork. You have the ability to speak directly to legislators as consumers and say, I want industry change. And so joining Diners United is a way to, that allows you to put pressure on restaurant owners and encourage change, put pressure on legislators and encourage change, and generally be part of uh, an association that is pushing issues that have the potential to unite us all in a very divided time. 
Um, Saru, I have I have one last question. I know we're not leaving enough time for this, but in, in the minutes remaining, could you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with this type of work, your story? Sure. <laughs> um, so I am the child of immigrants from India. Uh, I grew up in East L.A., um, east of East L.A., and uh, in a 99% Chicano Latino working class neighborhood, high school. Um, grew up pretty... Uh, angry seeing the way my parents experienced discrimination and struggled and seeing the way my classmates, um, families experienced a lot of hardship. Um, And so started off working with young people, doing youth organizing, and then some amount of labor organizing, and then 9-11 happened. And on 9-11, there was a restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center, Tower One, called Windows on the World, Um, And 73 workers died that morning in the restaurant, and about 250 workers lost their jobs, and about 13,000 restaurant workers lost their jobs in the months and weeks that followed. So we started a little relief center and called it Rock in the aftermath of the tragedy. And what started as a little relief center has grown into a national movement. We now have close to 20,000 worker members, 200 restaurant owner members, and several thousand consumer members in now over a dozen states across the country. And it's very, very telling, that story I just told to this moment, because so many of our employer partners around the country are saying, wow, it feels just like 9-11 right now, just in terms of the culture and climate in our industry. Um, And what I think it's important to remember is that as as horrible as 9-11 was, there were amazing things that came out of that tragedy, like rock, like a movement for change in our industry and lots of other sort of phoenixes rising from ashes uh, like rock. And if we learned anything over the last 15 years, is it's that we were able to build hope and inspiration out of tragedy. It's that we were able to actually unite very unlikely, very unlikely groups, workers and employers, just unheard of groups. And in fact, um, there was a New York Times article when my book came out in January where Danny Meyer was quoted saying, you know, until recently when I heard Saru's name, I would go running in the other direction. I was scared of her. And so over the last year, we especially, we have seen just extraordinary kind of uniting between employers who maybe never thought that they would work with us, working with us, um, extraordinary alliances between workers, employers, and consumers. So building unity across divide is possible. Building something even better than we had before out of terrible tragedy is possible. Um, A movement for change is never more ripe than when we are, in some cases, at our lowest moment, because it's the moment in which we are going to demand absolute transformation, and I have every faith and hope that we will do that now. Sara Jayaraman is the co-founder and co-director of the Restaurant Opportunity Center United and director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. On our next episode of The Secret Ingredient, Raj Patel, Tom Philpott, and I will talk with Dr. Joan Gussow, author of Growing Older, A Chronicle of Death, Life, and Vegetables, about the early days developing education around nutrition, gardening, where she sees progress in the food movement, and where she doesn't. You can subscribe to The Secret Ingredient on iTunes or on SoundCloud and find more information on this show along with our entire archive at thesecretingredient.org. Our engineer is David Alvarez, and also thanks to our wonderful intern, Shelby Hicks. For KUT in Austin, Texas, I'm Rebecca McEnroy.
Thanks for listening.